In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's like we're, 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 we're hurting these characters again. Thanks, Rick. Um. <laughs> no, thank you. You can take it back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And this week... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> this week we're reading the last book in the Riordan verse that I have read. Yeah, and it's a book that we've been hinting at for a very long time. Yeah. This week we're discussing The Burning Maze reluctantly <laughs> i don't want to talk about this book. <laughs> i was up last night after reading it until like 4 a.m i just couldn't stop thinking about it and crying <laughs> it's such a difficult book for me to read or to talk about so this will this will be fun <laughs> i guarantee i'm like breaking down in tears at least twice i did come away from this book like you know what incatatus is the funniest character in the reordin verse <laughs> that was my main takeaway i've read this book before this so I, I knew it was coming we'll get to it but the scene on the boat when he talks for the first time piper hears him talk for the first time makes me laugh every time even though it's so not funny it's like i was i was explaining it to my roommate because i was like i need you to understand like how funny this is because like the historical context that rick was working with was like caligula made his horse a priest and like tried to make his horse a consul like, that did actually happen. And a lot of historians use that as an example of this dude being completely batshit. And, like, taking inspiration from that, Rick was like, obviously I've got to bring the horse in there. How am I going to do that? And he decided on the funniest possible <laughs> way to do it, which is just, like, it's a talking horse. Incredible. 
It's so funny, too, because this book is so dark. Like, this book is not funny. This book is so not funny. Like, this is a dark, serious book. And yet this book is, like, if you stop and think about it, hysterically funny. Yeah, I refer to this book as my favorite uh, dark comedy. So before we get into, like, the actual book, I do want to point out the dedication because he dedicates this book to, is it Melpomene? Hold on, let me, let me look up the Greek. Melpomene. Melpomene. There you go. Who's the muse of tragedy, and she's my favorite of the muses. Everyone should go stream Melpomene by the Deer Hunter. <laughs> she's also the god that my Kenku paladin serves in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Your paladin who serves the goddess of tragedy? Yeah. The reason that I like her is because, like several of the muses, she wasn't originally associated with tragedy, but in like the Hellenistic period, you start to see the muses be assigned to specific like domains more often, and uh, mm. she became tragedy, which I've always found interesting to think about from her perspective. Like, was that <laughs> something that changed within her and humans picked up on it, or did they assign that role to her and she all of a sudden had to hear like tragedy after tragedy attributed to her? Well, we do kind of get that explored a little in this story. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like that was a particularly fitting tribute to have at the beginning to frame the book. Mm. I want to talk about the first few lines of this book. These books are very much written like Apollo is telling us the story. But here we get Apollo mentioning that he doesn't want to be writing this part of the story down, but he has to, basically, because his Zeus is sort of like making him tell his stories as part of his punishment. Yeah, I don't think this is something that Apollo necessarily is sure of, but this is something that he expects from Zeus. This opening page... It reminded me of the opening page of The Lightning Thief because I feel like this is the most acknowledgement that we've gotten since that opening page that this is a story that we're actively being told. But it's a shift because in the first couple books, this story seemed to be one that Apollo was like glad to tell us. At the beginning, yeah. no matter how humiliated he felt about all of it, he still, it seemed to be of his own volition because he felt compelled yeah. to tell it because he's a god and it's a story that should be shared. And now he's asking that you leave the story alone like Percy did on that first page. But the other reason that it reminded me of The Lightning Thief was the that final line of the first page, the very well, I warned you, in these pages only suffering awaits, um, which was very Lemony Snicket of him, but also very Percy Jackson of him. <laughs> mm -hmm. So where the action actually starts in this book is um, Apollo has been mortal now for two months, we find out. He, Grover, and Meg have been making their way through the labyrinth, um, trying to make it to Southern California, both because I, I think that's what the prophecy told them to do and because that's where Grover's like home base is nowadays. But then they encounter these monsters called Strixes, which are kind of like owls. Yeah. And apparently if you kill one, it curses you, which sounds familiar. It does. And also, when Apollo is describing the labyrinth, he also describes it as, like, a living thing, um, which is not a description we've, like, seen before of the labyrinth, but he also, like, kind of makes a joke and is like, and then this, we must be, like, landing in the labyrinth's intestines. Yeah. Which also kind of reminded me of the description of Tartarus. And then we've got, you know, we've got the monsters. If you kill them, you get, you get cursed. And there's a lot in this book of, like, just the atmosphere in the labyrinth, the heat and the air feeling poisonous and oppressive. Mm -hmm. And 
when we start talking about what the labyrinth like symbolizes that'll probably come back because <laughs> we also get hit with the information as well that apparently the labyrinth's got a new monster or they're like well you can't go to this part of the labyrinth it's like this is his part of the labyrinth yeah we're also getting apollo starting to get some angst he's Number one, apparently, like, losing a lot of his memory about, like, the last few times he was human. And it's been kind of, like, canon that his memory kind of comes and goes, uh, depending on, like, when it's most inconvenient slash convenient to him. It does seem like it's getting worse, and he does worry that he's been human now much longer than the, than the prior times, and that the more he's human, the harder it will be to become a god again. Because he's sort of, like, turning more and more mortal. And we see this, like, developing a lot more through this book. Like, I think it's been kind of developing the whole series. But in this book especially, you see a lot of this development of, like, the ways he thinks about, like, what does it mean to be mortal to him? And how he's kind of more and more doing them. Yeah, Apollo in this opening, what struck me, compared to the last book, you know, when we saw Apollo again, he still had that, like, arrogant edge mm-hmm. to him in this book he just you could feel how much more mortal he was and how much more mortal he thought of himself as um like he didn't yeah. have the kinds of thoughts that he was having in the last book the specific example i'm thinking of is it's in these same chapters like a, a, probably a chapter or two later when grover is explaining the situation in southern california at this point and he says mm. that you know he just wishes that like humans cared about any of this but humans don't care demigods don't care and then he kind of trails off but implies gods don't care and apollo doesn't even think for a second to fight him on that he just Mm. immediately like admits to himself and thinks to himself yeah we don't care that's that's totally valid so they can't kill the strixes and they're in a pretty tight bind but then grover manages to use panic again and Meg is also able to use some of her seeds and her magic to help get them out. And then she says um, she feels like the labyrinth is helping them. Yeah. I was like, I don't believe that. Sorry, Meg. <laughs> Apollo doesn't believe her either. Oh, right. Because it seems like the bricks are dissolving so that the strawberries can root themselves in there. It does make me question whether the labyrinth, it's, it does seem like the labyrinth was helping them. It also doesn't, like, super lead them astray. Like, I feel like... It takes them exactly where they need to be every single time Mm -hmm. in this book. I think the only time we hear about it being complicated moving around in the labyrinth is at the very end of the book. But I think that makes sense to me because it's like there's this dangerous new power that's sort of been put inside of it that I feel like the labyrinth doesn't want. That would make sense. In my head, I was like, oh, there's a new force in there that might be manipulating the labyrinth or controlling it in some way. Because we know that, like, I mean, we'll learn later, spoilers, but (laughs) we'll learn later that, like, the force that's in the labyrinth doesn't want Apollo in there, really. Like, Mm -hmm. if Apollo's in there, that means you're closer to the the final plan coming together, and it doesn't want Mm -hmm. that. So trying to help Apollo out of the labyrinth. It's probably a good thing. I wasn't really thinking of the labyrinth as being in control of itself, but that would also make sense. But yeah, the labyrinth allows Meg to plant some strawberries, which they use to create like a vine barrier between themselves and the birds. And they escape into the world above, into the desert in Palm Springs. Grover has built sort of a base 
there. Um, and it turns out he's been there for a long time, trying to find the cause of a series of wildfires that have been starting across Southern California since the fires seem to sprout out of the labyrinth. We also got some comments on him about like him as a leader and stuff from Apollo. Yeah, I had a lot of feelings about seeing Grover again, because the last time we saw him was in Chalice of the Gods, and like I mentioned in that episode, we didn't really get too, too close to him. Like, we spent most of that book focusing mainly on, like, what was going on with Percy and in Percy's inner world, rather than uh, Annabeth's or Grover's, and so... I still feel a little bit like the last time I saw Grover was in Heroes of Olympus. And he made like two cameos, two chapter, not even chapter long cameos in the last series. That's true. He really was not in the last series. It's so funny to me, though, because it's treated like Grover is like an actor who decided to leave the show. (laughs) (laughs) Made a couple cameos just to like keep his character relevant and then came back just for this one season not even he like guest starred in like two or three episodes like a three episode spread right he was a special guest star but getting to see what's going on with grover after taking on this mission i think it's really clear from when we talked to grover that this mission to heal the wild and like take on what pan left him with has been really taxing on him and has drained him of a lot of the optimism that he had at the end of the first series but at the same time the grover that we see here is such a sure leader and like still has some of the anxiety that makes grover grover but Mm -hmm. he's acting quicker than he usually would with a clearer mind than he usually would and the, the line that i'm thinking of right now he says when i was a seeker looking for pan at least i had hope i thought i could find pan and he'd save us all now the god of the wild is dead and then that combined with like Later on, he says, My father and my uncle sacrificed their lives searching for Pan. I just wish we had more help carrying on this work. And this is the line I was talking about before. He says, Humans don't seem to care, even demigods, even, and then trails off. These are two, I don't know if they're two, they might just be one major theme, (laughs) where we're looking back at the first series and how neatly it was cleaned up. Like, how neatly it cleaned up everything, and then saying, like, is it that simple? And then continuing off of that, this thing that starts with Grover of carrying on a legacy or a person's work after they're gone, which that theme is introduced to us through Grover talking about the work that Pan has left him with and how impossible it feels. Mm. Um, They pass out when they exit the labyrinth. We see two visions. The first is a prophet like chained in what looks like the base of a volcano, essentially with like lava all over. Then there's a second vision, seeing a younger man in Pompeii is it Pompeii? Or did I just assume? I don't think it's Pompeii, but it is a place in like the shadow of Vesuvius. Is Capri in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius? Like all of the Amalfi Coast is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's Capri, which is where uh, Tiberius' palace was. Anyway, an imperial guard comes up to him covered in scratch marks and he says, it is done. And we get our first description of Caligula. And I think this is a really good description of him. I didn't oh, I didn't write it down, though. Oh, my God. Oh, you want me to read it? Even if you do not recognize his features, dear reader, I am sure you have met him. He is the school bully, too charming to get caught, the one who thinks up the cruelest pranks, has others carry out his dirty work, and still maintains a perfect reputation with the teachers. He is the boy who pulls the legs off insects and tortures stray animals, yet laughs with such pure pleasure he can almost convince you it, it is harmless fun. He's the boy who steals money from the temple collection plates behind the backs of old ladies who praise him for being such a nice young man. 
He is that person, that type of evil. That description is given immediately after he, he is now the emperor of Rome because they've just assassinated the previous emperor. Yeah. This scene is also, and it's interesting to me for several reasons. Number one, I really like that description of him as a villain. It sets him apart immediately from Commodus and Nero, where all of these emperors are cruel. But this sets Caligula apart as being an evil that, like, you can see plain as day, and yet society and the the greater world will never believe you about. Mm -hmm. which I really enjoy as a symbolic concept also when thinking about all of the things that the emperors represent. I'm going to come, I'm sure I'm going to come back to this description uh, in the next few books. She says, not knowing what's in the next few books. (laughs) Something else that's interesting about this scene to me. So we actually don't know if Caligula had his, had Tiberius murdered. Um, Although he was not very well loved. Um, And actually when Caligula first rose into being emperor, a lot of people were really excited because he wasn't Tiberius, because Tiberius was also a very cruel emperor. Uh, Apparently the first few months of his reign, he actually didn't do anything cruel. He seemed to be like he was going to be like the perfect good emperor who was going to like undo a lot of the really terrible things that Tiberius did. Um, But then apparently he basically got so sick and was on death's door for a while, a few months into his reign. And then after he got better, that was when he started being the Caligula that we know him to be. And there's some debate over whether or not he was just trying on being the opposite of Tiberius at first, and like this was always kind of part of him and what he where he was going to end up, or if that brush with death or that illness sort of changed him in some way or awakened some dormant mental health issues. But it's interesting in this that in this version of him, he was always that person. And in this version as well, that like initial kindness would have just been one big trap, essentially. Hmm. Which, incidentally, is that the first time Apollo's just, like, dreamed history he wasn't there for? Because mm-hmm. he, he has a dream of, like, his quest, and then usually after that we have a dream of, like, his own backstory or his own memories. But that doesn't happen. We actually get to see Caligula in, like, a crucial moment growing up. Although, I just realized, I think, I have an interesting theory as to how that might have happened. I was about to say my theory, but it's jumping ahead a little bit. It's also mine is also jumping ahead a lot of it. So I'm one. <laughs> how much you want to bet it's the same theory? It might be. <laughs> the theory that I just occurred to me was that we also learn Caligula styles himself as Neos Helios, which is the new sun. This is like skipping so ahead, but there's like a moment at the end where, as part of the climactic battle, Apollo is sort of in a mind meld with. Caligula and Helios like the old the current and the potential new sun god and I wonder if that's the connection if he if the part of Apollo that's like the sun god that's like transitioning is able to like connect with Caligula because of it Mm. my theory was that all of the dreams that Apollo had of his past were almost all tragedies that he had experienced but he this one the tragedy was in this book And so the dream that he was having was, like, about the person who was about to cause the tragedy that happens in this book. So, like, he's having dreams that are prophetic, almost, by looking at the past. Oh, interesting. No, yeah, having dreams of, like, the pieces of the past that are about to come. Yeah, it was like, you know, usually in those dreams, it's like he sees a piece of, like, the calm before the storm, and then it gets into the tragedy. And so it was like, here's the, what came first, and now it's time for the tragedy, Mm. but the tragedy just, like, happens in the book. Hmm, I like it. 
So they head to the army surplus store to find Coach Hedge. Yeah, and it turns out he hasn't been detained or anything. He's just like, He's just stopping. in there. <laughs> <laughs> Again, one of the many ways in which this book is low-key hysterically funny. <laughs> but we do get to meet, it's called the macro, what, is it like macro surplus or something? Yeah. We meet Macro, who was the man that Apollo saw murder Emperor Tiberius. And he's got the scars on his arms from it. He's the manager of the store, and all of the store's employees have been replaced with automatons. And they have been ordered to bring Apollo to the Emperor. They use the same plan that they used in The Last Olympian to try and control the automatons, but it, it goes wrong. Well, sort of. This is my, this is my nitpick of the, of the episode. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, activate planned Thermopylae. And at first I was like, oh, okay, Thermopylae, a famous battle for like a rear guard action where, you know, like a small force stays to like give the rest of the forces time to retreat by closing off like a very um, narrow pass. But then they proceed to encircle the whole force of the automaton and like heat up and like completely block them in in a full circle. Which annoyed me because there is a really famous battle called the Battle of Cannae where Hannibal did that to the Romans. And like, that's what this resembles. So I was just like, why, why is it Thermopylae? That doesn't, that doesn't look like. He mixed them up. <laughs> well, no, what happened was, um, I think in the grand scheme, once again, the movie 300 is haunting my life and ruining everything. Because I feel like everyone knows the Battle of Thermopylae. Like that's probably the number one ancient battle people can name check because of the movie but the battle of Kanai, that's like one of the dirtiest things hannibal ever did it's crazy he was severely outnumbered but managed to trick the romans into getting completely surrounded by troops blocked them in so that they were so bunched up that they couldn't even like use their weapons and then like not to get too graphic uh, but uh, Dan Carlin of Hardcore History uh, starts his discussion of this event by saying, how long do you think it takes to kill thousands of people by hand? I mean, come on. Th- they did it. That's exactly, they-, they literally enacted the plan. I know nobody knows the Battle of Kenai, but they should. It's crazy. Anyway. It's in these chapters also that we learn a lot of important background information. We have like a lot of Meg has such a crazy backstory. Yeah, that's one of the things. We learned that the the building where Grover has built uh, his base is actually Meg's childhood home. She and her father were forced to flee when she was around like five years old, I think she says. We actually learned that uh, in a very similar way to how Hazel shares her memories. Yeah. Because she grabs Apollo's wrist and he's like brought into her memories with her. And so we get to yeah. see Meg... And her father, when he was working on a project that she didn't know too much about, she just knew that there were these special seeds that he needed to create and plant. Then we see like her father receiving these notices on dandelion-colored paper and essentially watch them get evicted from their home, which I think then like catches on fire or something. <laughs> yeah, Meg is such a mystery to me. She knows so many things and then never explains why she knows them. <laughs> Like, the fact that she knew that she could just share a memory like this. It's, even Apollo, too, is like, how did you... Yeah. How do you do that? Because he thinks about empathy links. And he's like, did you just make one with me? I, the way I explained it in my head was it's because he's bound to her. There's like different rules. 
I don't know. It's interesting. Meg's just this character where I feel like she has a very strong, like, intuitive sense of, like, what she's capable of. She's got, like, this strong will. So I feel like it makes sense to me that she would just be like, I can do this. And then just, like, grab Apollo and do it. Yeah. Ooh, here's another theory. There's a lot with pouring yourself out and showing your vulnerabilities with Apollo sort of as a channel with the music. So part of me wonders if, like, that's an ability of Apollo's, too, where he's, like, capable of channeling people's memories and like vulnerability like if that's like maybe a more low-key piece of his mortal magic it's a good theory since like poetry and music are both forms of expressing emotions in unconventional ways because it seems like like she doesn't want to tell him she just wants to show him like she's just like i don't i don't really want to explain this to you i just want you to like see it yeah that makes sense so i guess we can skip to like we hear from melly that piper actually had a dream about the maze and went on a like mini quest into the labyrinth with Jason. And so because Apollo knows from his dream that he's going to have to go into the labyrinth to find the Sybil, and he knows that something's going on inside the maze, he figures he should go talk to Piper about what that quest was and what her dream was. So that's what we do next. We head to Malibu. And now that Piper's here... <laughs> I love Piper in this book and the way that she's characterized. Oh my god. Piper in this book. I remember the first time I read this book, I was like gobsmacked because I forgot that Rick was capable of writing good characters, honestly. (laughs) 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 Or like good character arcs, rather, I should say. Like, oh man. She's just so like direct and so funny. Like, I think Piper is also a great source of comedy in this book. And it's like, we know Piper. She's not hiding the way that she feels but she feels very stable like she's dealing with a lot but because she's someone who's like very in touch with her own emotions she seems like she's able to process them and give herself a moment to respond so that her response is like thought through like she's very she feels very put together despite the fact that her life is falling apart around her and I think a part of that is that she's kind of resigned herself to like I'm going to start fresh I'm going to move to Oklahoma and I'm going to get to spend a lot of time with my dad and I'm going to have the new life that I've wanted for so long. It's going to take some suffering to get there, but I'm going to get there and it's going to be something new. So I think that's part of it is just she's ready to move on and be done with this chapter of her life. Yeah. She also finds out that Leo's alive from Apollo. Yeah. Which is wild, honestly. Yeah, because like I in my head, I know I think in... um. The Hidden Oracle, we say that, like, Piper and Jason went together to try and find Leo. And then they couldn't find him. And it was like, well, he's he's just gone now. Like, it's been, at this point, like, eight months or something. Yeah. I feel like this is a really important lens to look at, like, Piper and Jason's sort of journey in this book. Like, from their perspective, you know, they defeat Gaia, but their friend just like vanishes and they're assuming he's dead they're searching for him frantically they can't find him they have to come to terms with the fact that they can't find him and he's probably dead and then they get back to start their lives and when all of that is said and done realize like what do we have i feel like like you said it kind of like all of those like messy complicated things that felt too neat they're all just like unraveling in this series yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking a lot about during this scene, because this is also the moment when we find out that Piper and Jason broke up. The fact that these two didn't make it is honestly at the core of what hurts me most about this book. <laughs> mm. But I I feel like this is all part of a huge question that this book starts to answer, which is 
that question the the what happens after the story ends and like can wrapping up a story be that simple mm. or like will things always be better than the way that they were and the mm. answer that this book gives is no things will get worse and things that you thought were fixed or that you thought were permanent will shatter you know the the love story at the core of the second series that started it off like jason like the the first book the lost hero starts with jason and piper holding hands and that doesn't last you know grover is now lore of the wild but protecting the wild is a major undertaking that he really feels like he can't possibly achieve and then there's more throughout the book that we'll get to but when we like pile that on top of what we've seen in the last couple books with like leo and calypso's relationship kind of starting to mm. fall apart or like just the fact that the emperors are here and like yeah. turn out to be behind everything so like really every time we won there was a battle we had no idea we were still losing mm. and it's just this whole series feels like it's looking back on the original series and the heroes of olympus and being like realistically would any of this last you know I, I feel like this book does a lot with like the topic of impermanence which we'll get into also oh yeah <laughs> um and specifically asking the question of like if that's the case if like none of this realistically would last what can you do that will last and like is there anything you can make last after the story ends mm. and i think that that question is what we're really going to be circling especially toward the end of this book but this is where I feel like it, when I I really started thinking about this was when Piper started talking about the fact that she and Jason broke up. I was like, that's crazy. You guys can't break yeah. up. This is a YA novel. <laughs> you get together and you stay together forever. <laughs> I know. I had the same thought, I think, when I first read this, and which is why this impressed me so much. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about basically romance and happily ever after which i think is why it feels so crazy that this happened is because we made it to their relationship made it to happily ever after this is happily ever after right and within a couple months it was over yeah no they're like 15 16 like of course it's not forever and yeah no actually the way this started even though they reclaimed it at the end of last year the way this started it was always gonna be doomed when you're living real life instead of like in a story yeah, like they were always bound to have that conversation and they clearly didn't make it out of it the way that they thought they were going to. Yeah, you know, I do think that is part of the whole like chosen one vibe you get from the series of it's like, no, you're the chosen one. You know, you have plot armor, everything's tied up in a neat little bow for you. And then we're coming back to reality here. Yeah, it's like you're no longer the main character, so you're not safe from any of that anymore. Yeah, no plot armor for you. You don't even get to die in the climactic battle. You get the act two reversal, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> you get the quest for a pair of shoes. That line, oh my god. <laughs> so basically her dad is bankrupt now. They're, they plan to move the next day. But for now, Piper says, you know, she's going to offer her help for today. She says yeah. that she'll take Apollo and Meg into the labyrinth um, to the entrance that she dreamed about that's in downtown L.A., and so she packs up her new blowgun, which she got from her grandfather, and she steals a car from their neighbor by talking him into loaning it to her. Uh, which seems eerily familiar to, you know, her initial crime that got her sent to, what what's it called, that school in the beginning of Lost Hero. Yeah. Also, I love that her neighbor's, like, afraid of her, because it seems like she's been, she, like, does this all the time, where she'll just, like, go and be like, give me your car, and he's like, <laughs> I don't want to, but I am. It's so funny. I love the moment where she tells Apollo that he's gonna drive, and he goes to argue with her, and then, uh, 
Piper gives him the smile. It's like, I can make you do it if you want. (laughs) (laughs) I love Piper so much. So they head toward the labyrinth, and during the next chapter or so, Piper tells us a little bit more about the quest that she and Jason went on into the labyrinth. And we'll learn later that this, like, the timeline is that they broke up months ago, and then they went on this journey into the labyrinth, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. Another thing I enjoy about this, like, it's clear they both still deeply care about each other. Yeah. And it's, like, it's clear that, like, oh, I've got to go on a dangerous quest. I'm still going to call Jason. We're just not together. I just, I love a fucking complicated situation. It's so messy. I love when characters, like, it's tragic, but they still love each other, you know? Like, I just... Yep. (laughs) What gets messier about this is like the the story that Piper tells is that she had this dream she went to Jason and the two of them headed into the labyrinth together but when they got inside they were separated by a plume of flame and afterwards Piper couldn't find Jason and then because she was alone and scared she left him behind inside the labyrinth which is like a crazy thing to do (laughs) and then when he came out a few minutes later he wouldn't say what he'd seen And I just, I think about that quest into the labyrinth all the time. I think about it all Mm -hmm. the time. I would kill to see that on the page. Like, it sounds like it was tense and weird and tragic in the best possible way. Yeah. Jason must be good at crosswords. I believe it. Just based on the way that he is. (laughs) (laughs) They find the entrance. Piper is able to use her blowgun to stun the single guard. And they're able to enter the labyrinth and come upon a pretty traumatic scene this is like one of the darkest scenes in the series maybe the darkest scene that's a bold claim (laughs) that is a bold claim maybe i just find body horror traumatic i don't know uh um they find two dryads agave and moneymaker and they have just encountered whatever forces inside the labyrinth that we haven't totally gotten to understand yet uh agave has lost a, a limb one of her arms has like been burnt to a crisp basically and like part of half of her face is burnt too it's like half of her body basically seems to have been caught in these flames but it seems like moneymaker got basically her whole body caught in those flames she it says she's like her her legs below the knee are just gone again it's like what it is it's like maiming because i feel like violence and death happen a lot in these books but there's something about maiming versus straight up killing that just feels a lot like darker because it's not clean it's messy it's painful it's like you know what i mean yeah it's one it's another one of those moments where like because it's a dryad it's okay (laughs) Because I'm thinking also of, like... Yeah, the Minads. These poor Dryads, man. They just keep getting, like, destroyed. They get, like, the worst, like, pain and punishment. Oh, yeah. And they also, like, all sacrifice themselves to help Apollo in the first Trials of Apollo book. They are suffering. (laughs) Grover takes the two Dryads back to the surface. And Meg, Apollo, and Piper continue forward to the exact place where she lost Jason in the maze originally. Mm -hmm. And that's when Medea appears, who it turns out is a major part of Caligula's plan. I did think it was very interesting that, like, Jason and Piper are encountering Medea again. So I'm trying to remember exactly how they left it with her last time. It ended in a charm speak battle, basically, between Medea and Piper. Yeah, with Medea trying to tell the boys what her real backstory was, and Piper trying to explain that she was lying to them, and us being like, "Who's who's right? Who's to say?" I'm still unsure. This book makes it makes me feel like she was lying. (laughs) 
But the lost hero made me feel like she was telling me the truth, so... I don't know how I feel about Medea in this book. Because I feel like she's... I, in the last one, like, again, she wasn't, like, necessarily, like, pure villainy, you know? She was just sort of like, I'm back. Yeah, and I feel like... I mean, I might be making this up, but I feel like the last we saw of her in The Lost Hero was her telling them not to leave her. She says, like, you want Jason's memories restored. Take me with you. You're not going to survive your quest without me. Take me with you. Like, she just, all she wants is to get out and doesn't want to be left alone again. She definitely wasn't the, like, straightforward villain. But, I mean, you can easily, you can see the backstory kind of fill in, though, because it's like, she's like, take me with you begging her you know new department stores in shambles and then one of the triumvirate probably Caligula find her and they're like hey I won't leave you behind (laughs) what's the pitch for the Avengers (laughs) (laughs) Nick Fury showed up at her door (laughs) but I can also see that kind of spurring her on this path where she's like this is very Medea in the myth as well because she begins her story, you know, with her involvement with Jason, but after she murders her children and gets her revenge on Jason for marrying another woman and incidentally leaves him alive. The tragedy of Medea is that Jason doesn't actually die at the end of Medea. Everyone he loves has been murdered by Medea and he's just left to sit there and like mourn them. Like he's left in his grief. And she just kind of pieces out on her chariot pulled by dragons. And there's several other stories of her taking refuge at other people's courts because you know, she's been exiled from a bunch of places because she is not a nice person and has done very evil things. And in those stories, she's a much more vengeful and bloodthirsty person and character where I think she's sort of the product of that betrayal a lot more. So this does kind of track, though, for that version of Medea where she's sort of hit a point where she's been betrayed, she's been abandoned, and now she's just sort of taking it out on everybody. And then we find out from Medea what's going on. Yeah, the plan is that Caligula and Medea are going to capture Apollo and then drain him of his godly essence and combine it with Helios's essence, which is what they've summoned and housed in the labyrinth. His part of the maze is like where Helios is. They're going to combine Helios's essence with Apollo's essence because they're both the sun god and then use that essence to make Caligula the new sun god like he's always wanted. Yeah. She also mentions, which is very silly of her, she shouldn't have mentioned this, that the only way to reach the civil is with her permission, or if you're wearing the emperor's shoes. Just letting them know what the next quest should be. I was like, why did you say that? <laughs> she's monologuing, you know, she's just... Yeah. <laughs> so they escape the maze. As we leave the labyrinth, we have our first loss of the book, which is Moneymaker. She was burned so badly while in the maze that she dies before Apollo even makes it back out. So, what happens here? I think Apollo passes out at this point. Yeah. He passes out a lot in this book. He does. <laughs> and dreams of uh, when he first met Caligula. And we get to know a little bit more about our emperor for this book. You know, there's like this air of unpredictability with him where you never know if he's going to, you know, take your comment. Like, I, I can't remember the ones in the book, but a real life example of this is apparently there's a story where when he was on death's door when he was sick, one of the political officials said, like, I'd give my life for the emperor to come, you know, be returned us like healthy basically like for him to get better and Caligula heard about this and when he did get better he was like cool and uh I I can't remember if he was executed or forced to commit suicide but 
it's like that form of twisted logic. Like you said this and so I'm going to hold you to it basically. Don't say what you don't mean. <laughs> exactly. Which is, I found when I was thinking about themes in this book, that was sort of where I was coming into it because it's an exploration of like words and also I kind of stretched that into like promises because there's a lot mm-hmm. about saying things and being held to them even if you don't think even if you think you mean them like regardless of whether or not you mean them or how much you mean them yeah so the symbol as well is like there's all these missing words where you have to kind of fill in the blanks and it's like how how can you get held to that and yet you are because you know it's the future it's just interesting to me that the villain of this book is one whose villainy is holding you to promises you may not even realize you're making yeah anyway i'm like dreading talking about this (laughs) That's my next no is Jason. It's Jason, I know. Okay, so <laughs> because we now have confirmation from Medea that Jason met the Sybil and knows something that we don't, they decide the next step is to go find Jason at his new school in Pasadena. And despite the fact that Piper um, insists that she is distancing herself from Jason, uh, she has his new schedule memorized, and she goes and knocks on his classroom door and charm speaks the teacher into letting him out early. And I so wish that we'd seen Jason's face when she walked in. (laughs) Um, Also, an interesting note, Jason was reading Julius Caesar in class. That, That might be relevant, I don't know. And then Jason leads us back to his dorm room. And this is where I want to talk a little bit more about Piper and Jason's relationship. Before we get into that, though, we also find out something else very important, which is that Jason plays lacrosse. Jason plays lacrosse, yeah. Scott McCall things. <laughs> Teen Wolf likes to throw in, like, a bunch of random stuff. Like, what if Jason Grace just showed up on Teen Wolf? That'd be pretty funny. In many ways, Jason is a Teen Wolf. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, I, the way that Piper and Jason interact in this scene, I can't get over it because it's going from like the last time that we saw them together on the roof of, I think it's the Zeus cabin, like sharing their quote unquote first kiss again to then seeing them like this. It's like, it's so jarring. All of a sudden they're, they're here and like Jason is lying to Piper and Piper can see straight through him because she knows him so well. And mm-hmm. is sitting there, like, as far from him as possible, laughing to herself because he just keeps lying and avoiding her questions. And, like, the way that he corrects himself when he calls her pipes, I, that one hurts the most. Mm. Their whole dynamic, again, is so... They, they clearly still love each other a lot because, like, Piper has yeah. Jason's whole schedule memorized and trusted Jason enough to take him on this quest with her into the labyrinth in the first place. You know, Jason is only lying over and over to protect her in his mind and just so clearly wants to break through the tension that's just sitting there building through the whole scene Mm. because he he loves her they're best friends like it's just (laughs) my notes at this point turn into this is absolute torture (laughs) me just (laughs) talking about how much how much pain i was in reading this i think the thing that gets me about them is like from what we learn over the course of the book is like it seems like they had a pretty like amicable breakup but still for some reason there's some kind of like it's not resentment but it's like they they aren't connecting in the way that they used to like jason even says later on that like the way things have been between them it's been hard for them to really work together 
even though when we actually see them work together later on they they like just fit together so naturally and so like when I look at them here I feel like no matter how much they tell me I'm still only getting half the picture on what's happening between the two of them I don't know if it's resentment it feels more like it's just like they're taking the time to grow and learn like without the other person being part of that but I feel like for me like we we know from the conversation that Jason has with Apollo in the scene that like Jason not only he's trying to avoid fate right now but he also knows he can't and is just sort of resigned to it and has kind of chosen a tragic fate in the name of protecting Piper and so it feels like Jason's sort of like all right this is the end of the road it's the end of us and I'm also gonna choose Piper versus like where Piper is is she's like I need to like become my own person without all of this I need to figure out who I am and we learn a little bit more later like it's not just about Jason it's about a bunch of other things in her life as well Mm -hmm. so it's like to me it's just like this heart-wrenching twinge of like Jason is sort of giving her the space to grow knowing he's never gonna get to that point with her yeah Maybe that's what I'm picking up on is like Piper is sort of behaving like none of this is the end of the conversation. Like she she feels that like there's so much time left for them to continue this conversation and to move forward while Jason knows that that this is it. And so is like is like feeling that sort of tug between wanting to fix things and knowing that he needs to give her space. So maybe that's why it feels like they're kind of on very different pages some of the time. So Piper basically accuses Jason of lying. And Jason admits that he has been lying. He reveals that he knows how to get to the Emperor. But that the Oracle said that it would be too dangerous if they went before Apollo showed up. And so Piper and Meg go see if they can find themselves a car to steal. (laughs) And then Apollo turns to Jason and goes, Okay, what did she really tell you? Jason finally admits after a long moment that the oracle told him that if they go after the emperor either piper or jason is going to die so jason's plan was to let piper leave town and then go after the emperor himself to make sure that it was him that died on the quest i have a lot of feelings about this (laughs) i don't understand the jason haters i truly don't i care so much about him is the thing (laughs) the fact that he's like felt his death coming for him for so long at this point and like we got to a point in the last series where we thought we were past it (laughs) we thought we'd hit the end of that arc but no it keeps going (laughs) that's why i'm not surprised at how resigned jason seems by like apollo says that he he looks at him and is struck by how young jason is but the fact that he's Mm -hmm. so sure that his death is coming and has decided on it and is like willing to make sure of it but it doesn't really surprise me because we know that the threat of death has been like a constant in a far more substantial way for Jason than for any other character. Like even when Jason wasn't aware of it being there, it was there and we could see it like like a cloud over him. So his familiarity with it and the peace that he feels with it make total sense to me. I think it's also like, again, this is one of the few times we've seen this series where a character actively chooses a prophecy and they're like, okay, yeah, prophecy, prophecy, I, but I'm choosing this to be about me. I'm choosing for this to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think it gives him agency and control in a way that 
he probably has felt very little of in his life. And it's like, not just like, I'm going to choose this. It's like, I'm, he's choosing it to protect Piper, someone he still clearly very much loves. You know, either Piper and I are going to die, I'm going to choose for it to be me. Which is why I'm almost surprised that there isn't more anxiety coming off of him in this scene, because it's like, they are ruining his plan by bringing Piper yeah. here. Like, the fact that Piper now has to go on this quest with them should be nerve-wracking for him. Because that makes avoiding the prophecy ten times harder. I think Jason and Paul also have a, another really interesting conversation as well, because Jason asks Apollo to carry on his legacy for him. Which is kind of a wild thing to ask. Like, hey, Apollo the god that's notorious for neglecting everything can you like he's treating apollo like he's mortal not like he's a god yeah but the other thing that i thought was interesting is uh jason mentions that he like tried to argue with zeus on apollo's behalf when zeus was i know gonna was about to curse him and apollo was like you what i I just scrolled down in my notes and saw that i'd written down that quote and that was why i took a a big breath of air because i was like oh god i forgot about that (laughs) (laughs) but i think jason is being really smart here because if he gave anyone else the like quest to complete his plans for the redesign of camp jupiter and to honor the gods and like fix all of this you know like apollo is the most powerful person who's going to listen to him like ever Like I said, I feel like this book has a lot of things to say about legacy and carrying Mm -hmm. things on. And so I think the fact that, like, this was originally something that Percy fought for. Jason takes it on from Percy. So, like, Percy can go live his his normal life now and doesn't have to worry about any of that because it's in Jason's hands. And then Jason is now giving it over to Apollo, setting us up for that theme that we'll continue to talk about of leaving behind work for other people to take up when you're Mm -hmm. gone. Uh, to respond to the second part of what you said, the quote is, <laughs> mm. um, Jason said, I'm sorry I couldn't do more. I tried to talk sense into Zeus. I told him he was wrong to punish you. He wouldn't listen. And he says this, it's coming out of their conversation about the fact that they both lost their memories and both, you know, defied Zeus at this point. And I, the, the fact that we're reminding us of the fact that Jason talked back to Zeus and Zeus was really upset about it in that same scene just you know put a pin in that i guess Mm -hmm. but at the end of this conversation he makes apollo promise i put this in caps promise (laughs) uh when you get back to olympus when you're a god again remember remember what it's like to be human because like i said jason is smart and knows that this is their best chance of actually making a difference they have apollo here and if apollo ever makes it back to olympus they have someone who's on their side right now and who's experienced being human. And as long as he can remember what that was like, they have a chance of making a change. So, new new take on changing the way the gods function. So they start their quest to Santa Barbara. Yeah. To go steal Caligula's shoes. To uh, be able to navigate the labyrinth. Thus begins the boat heist. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> It's funny because both Luke and Caligula have boat shoes. Yeah, you you know exactly whose idea it was to get Luke a big boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was sitting there and I was like, which of these is the Princess Andromeda? I'm sure it's here somewhere. Oh, yeah, the return of... <laughs> but they're sitting there, they're eating fish tacos. It's our moment of calm before the storm. When they spot a fleet of like 50 ships all belonging to Caligula that come in. And they immediately know, like, that's what we're looking for. 
they heist their way in there by disguising themselves as some guards that they basically Piper charm speaks them for like five minutes straight and then like almost collapses from it. <laughs> and on the way, I don't remember exactly when Apollo realizes this. It might be as they're getting there. I think it's in the boat. But Apollo looks at Meg and can tell that she's starting to get really angry. Um, and she, mm. he's been feeling that throughout the whole book, that she's been sort of reckless and driven by her own anger and a want for revenge. And so he tells her, like, hey, make sure that you're directing it in the right place. Don't go after Caligula. <laughs> mm. That's That would be extremely dangerous, which I'll have more to say on later. <laughs> I have a lot of mm -hmm. things to say later. <laughs> I know. There's just so much that happens at the end of this. It just, the, you know what it is too, is it's like we get like the bell rung of like all of these big things happening frequently throughout the book, which is good writing, by the way. It's foreshadowing, you know, it's, we're building to it. It's just like all the little moments that lead up mm -hmm. to the big kaboom. Yeah. When they get to the ship, they decide to split up. Meg and Jason are gonna go try and distract everyone in the direction of where they know the emperor is. But they also heard that the shoes are toward the back of the fleet, like in the 40s. And so Apollo and Piper are gonna go try and find the shoes. Really, I did really enjoy the scene, though, as part of the heist, when it's uh, Piper actually starts singing. And so this is this book's instance of... Actually, there's more than one. There's there's a couple times in this book it happens, but this is the first and I think the biggest one where now Piper sings and she pours out all of this stuff about her to distract the guards to help them get out of trouble. Kind of charm speaking, but it's more than that. Where she's singing all about how conflicted, she, how basically she feels like she doesn't have an identity because of all of these things that have built up. Part of it's the Jason stuff, but another piece of it is all about her heritage and her relationship with her dad and her relationship with her mom and how she doesn't feel like fully grounded and connected to any of it. I think that this is when we start to actually understand why Jason and Piper broke up because this whole time it's been a little yeah. bit of a mystery and here like from her song and from their conversation afterward we learned that like, once they tried to settle into their happily ever after Piper started to realize that what she thought this was going to be wasn't actually what it was and that like without the gods and the quest and the fact that Piper was the daughter of the goddess of love like all pushing them together she didn't know that what was holding them together what was keeping them together might not necessarily have been their actual feelings for each other like they obviously loved each other but she might have confused what the love was supposed to be eh. it's funny because like you go back and you think about Piper's chapters and she was thinking about Jason 24-7. Yeah. She constantly thinking about, like, what was Jason thinking of her and what was going to happen between them. Maybe it's that kind of, like, you know, once she has him and can be calm about it, she's mm. like, wait a minute. <laughs> Did I want this? Like, it was, like, the anxiety of losing something that she thought she had. And then once she had it, she was like, wait. I can't, I feel that makes sense though, because it feels like Jason is like the one thing I think she wants to hold on, to, she wants to hold on to, versus she's got all this other stuff that's like thrown at her that she doesn't want to stick, like, oh, child of Aphrodite. Like, she spends so long, like, not wanting that identity, so she's like pushing all of that away. Mm -hmm. And like, Jason's the one that's been pushed on her that she is like, doesn't hate. And I think this is also her coming to terms with the fact that Jason is something that her relationship with Jason is something else she's been told to have, not that she like came up with herself. Yeah. I feel like in Heroes of Olympus, Piper has spent 
so much of her life like we talked about in our heroes of olympus wrap up Mm. she spent so much of her life crafting an image of herself and has had to unlearn that throughout heroes of olympus and now that she's unlearned that she's left with this question of like okay then who are you and i just i remember reading this for the first time like reading this scene for the first time and for the first time in this book crying over something that was not related to jason (laughs) (laughs) because it was just such a like a wonderfully nuanced and complicated and real depiction of like what it is to have a such a loose handle on your own identity. Piper is just such a messy character because mm. she started out in this place of like internalized misogyny and racism and just discounting so much of herself. And so seeing her not just come out of that as like, you know, I'm fully confident in who I am now is just so much more realistic for her to come out of it and be like, wait, hang on and just be totally confused. Yeah. And so I love that she has this moment with Apollo where he tells her, like, it's not, it doesn't have to be like this moment where you suddenly understand yourself. You can, like, make choices and choose what of yourself you want to be for the day, and that's what you're going to be. And that can easily change day to day as you learn more about yourself. But you can end up spending the rest of your life learning to understand yourself, and it will always be okay that you're doing that. And I've always found that aspect of where we land with Piper really special. So anyway, they find the shoes. Yeah. Crest comes in and warns them that Jason and Meg have been captured by the Emperor. Yeah. And so they need to get out of there quick. But then. But then. The funniest part of the book happens. (laughs) (laughs) But then the horse. (laughs) Um, the horse shows up. I love the horse so much. And the horse just says Apollo in like, in my head, it's in the most like serious, dark No, in the audiobook, it's the same way. It's like Apollo. <laughs> like, it's such a good voice choice. It's so funny. <laughs> and Piper, who I don't think even knew that there was a talking horse involved in any of this. It's like, what? And then immediately gets kicked across the room and breaks her ribs and it's so not funny but it makes me like cry laugh every time because <laughs> every time the thing the thing that makes it so funny is that i've forgotten about the horse every single time that i get to this part in the book i do not forget i have i could never i could never forget about the horse it's just so <laughs> stupid and now we're talking to the horse and we get hit the horse's villain monologue <laughs> in which, you know, he's he goes on like, oh, Caligula, trust me. Caligula listens to me. I don't worry. Like, I'm working a secret agenda. My secret plan is we're just going to get rid of all the humans and we're going to create a world by and for the horses. He's leading the revolution. It's incredible. But I also, like, on an analytical perspective, it really shows that on this side of the fence, like, everyone is just so mercenary and just using everybody else and how it is serving them. But it, like, it's building up to this point of, like, when is it all going to fall apart? Like, when is it going to cease to serve them? Which, again, if you're thinking about the emperors and their pursuit of godliness as being, like, direct foils of the actual gods, 
is very interesting as well to look at all of that like who okay it seems like everyone does have their own secret agendas and it's also like just a good reminder of like uh, we've seen with the blemii and with the pandai these are all alternative races of men that just like for whatever reason work like monsters and not mortals but like why are why is humanity so special basically is sort of the reminder that this whole thing gets into where it's like no i'm the chosen one of the horses i'm the one with political power i'm gonna make this shit happen and lead the revolution it's a good laugh that you get right before everything goes terribly wrong (laughs) oh no i'm like i'm like stalling at this point (laughs) well they get the boots but the horse takes them to caligula and meg and jason are currently inside tornadoes that are filled with shrapnel which is evil um but apollo is basically on his own at this point because his three friends are currently incapacitated and he's very hurt too like he can't really do anything to fight back at this point and apollo gets furious and it's described the same way as like percy or nico where I was prepared for Apollo to do something insanely, insanely powerful. Like, that, it's set up in the mm. same way. But then, immediately, the narrative's like, but, but nothing happened. Like, he was just angry. Like, he didn't get his powers back. Yeah. So Apollo realizes how powerless he is right now, at this moment. But he does come up with a little bit of a plan. He grabs the arrow of Dodona, and he says to Caligula, You need me alive, so... Let my friends go, or I will kill myself with this arrow. It's a good window into where Apollo currently is, because later on in the book, we have him talking about how he was confident that Medea was going to try and fix him. Like, his full plan was Medea would lose her concentration, because she's been holding the wind spirits together this whole time, and she would lose her concentration trying to fix him. And so he would survive, but he's still willingly putting himself through that amount of pain, and putting mm-hmm. himself, like, he, he potentially could have died here. You know, maybe Medea wouldn't be able to help him because he stabbed himself in the heart. But, you know, we've had, I, I feel like this is a book where we've mentioned several times now, like, how terrifying death is, especially to Apollo. Like, there's a moment where he talks about how dying is the end to the greatest part of your existence. Because, like, the afterlife just mm-hmm. can't compare to being alive. And so knowing this is something he will risk not just for Meg, but for other demigods too, so that they can continue to live. That's a huge moment for him. So at first, it seems like everything is working. Because Medea comes to help Apollo, she plugs up his injury. Jason breaks out of his imprisonment because Medea's lost concentration. And this would normally be the point when you're reading this book where you're like, woohoo, they've done it. But in the narration, Apollo says, that was the last moment before everything went wrong. I feel like this level of, like, retrospective narrative style is much more a thing in the original Percy Jackson books. It's not really in Heroes of Olympus because there isn't... It's not in Heroes of Olympus because there isn't a narrator. Yeah, but he's been using it a lot in this book specifically. I wonder if it comes from the fact that he wishes he wasn't telling this story. And, like, every time he thinks about what's coming next, he's like... I, this shouldn't have happened this way. Yeah. You can you do get a sense of guilt from it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I can't believe I let this happen. But essentially, Jason manages to break out. And I guess that Thermopylae, Execute Plan Thermopylae was kind of foreshadowing. As I mentioned, Thermopylae was a rear guard action, which is basically someone sacrifice, some a group of people sacrifice themselves to allow everyone else to retreat, which is exactly what Jason does. 
And you, you get the sense that he sort of realized what was happening. And when he's meditating, you're kind of like... Yeah, he knows. Me rereading this is like, this is when he's like, this is my moment. This is the time. This is when it's going to happen. And so Jason immediately comes out swinging, telling them to get out of there. Yeah. He summons his horse. Tempest. Tempest. Well, there's a lot of imagery in this scene that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. First, he gets shot in the thigh with an arrow. There's a few different moments throughout this whole scene that reminded me of different famous hero deaths. The arrow reminds me, as it might remind many of you of Achilles, that like just sprouts out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's in the thigh, not the ankle. The thigh, though, reminds me of, unfortunately, the Aeneid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when Aeneas kills Turnus, he's able to do it by first wounding him in the thigh. I mean, honestly, if we're getting real, like, Greek heroes have died in so many ways that almost any way this could have gone down might have been reminiscent of some of them. Mm. But I do, and I do like the fact that I'm being reminded of both Aeneas and Achilles in this moment. Yeah. He's Greek, he's Roman, mm-hmm. he's, he's the heroes. But, um, and then we get to the next bit, and I just wrote down, oh, Phoebe was right. <laughs> About? <laughs> so this didn't make the final cut, because we don't put spoilers in. But when we were talking about Mark of Athena, when uh, Jason and Percy get possessed, they start jousting each other on their swords, and then oh. Jason gets knocked off, and <laughs> Phoebe was like, oh, my God. This is literally how Jason actually dies. And I was like, oh, because I guess they were both on horses or something. And then reading this, I was like, no, this is like shot for shot, the exact scene. Mm -hmm. I had such a visceral reaction rereading that scene in Mark of Athena and seeing Jason turn away from the battle and make eye contact with Piper. And then that being the reason that Percy gets him, first of all, and then getting knocked off of his horse by Percy second of all and then piper yelling at percy not to hurt him while jason's lying there on the ground i was like get away from him right now like i can't. <laughs> yeah because we get this moment what happens here is that jason he turns to apollo and he shouts at him go remember and then he takes an extra second to just like look at apollo and make sure that he knows like that he understands him and that extra second is what gets him because uh while jason's back is turned caligula turns around and throws his spear at him straight through the back jason whispers something to his horse tempest before falling off of his horse it's so cruel to me this one moment because caligula turns around and your thought is he's gonna come after them now they need to move but instead caligula just pulls the spear out of jason's back and then stabs him with it again to make sure he's dead the first time i read that i put the book down i just couldn't i couldn't keep going yeah i will say you won't know this if your knowledge of the iliad comes from song of achilles but this part reminds me a lot of Patroclus's death. Oh no. <laughs> it's not a total callback, but it's the, the parallels are strong enough that it made me think. There's, there's a whole thing where Patroclus is killed in three blows by three different people. Only the final blow coming from Hector, where Hector spears him just to make sure he's dead, basically. But before that, he's been mortally wounded by someone else's spear. He got stabbed in the back by somebody named Euphorbus, who's just like some guy, just some rando. 
who just, like, got a good shot out. Patroclus gives a whole speech about how Hector isn't even the one to kill him. He, he puts on Achilles' armor, and he's, like, unstoppable, basically. Not because of the armor, just because he's actually a good fighter in the Iliad. But what stops him right before he's about to get to the walls of Troy is Apollo appears out of nowhere and is like, not today, and then just, like, smacks his, some of his armor off, which is why the other guy gets a good shot in and why Hector is able to, like, finish the job. This is the worst. <laughs> But, like, that double kill, that double stabbing, spearing through the back just reminded me a lot of that moment in the Iliad. Also because the description of Patroclus dying is referred to as the death of the hero. Because in the Iliad, there's a few different passages that are actually repeated multiple times throughout the text, like the exact same words. And so Patroclus and Hector's deaths, the way they're described, are identical Greek. So that was why I thought it was kind of cool that that reminded me of all of that. I'm, like, trying really hard not to cry right now. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like for me to read The Death of the Hero? (laughs) That'll really make me cry, but go for it. I'll read my my own translation of it, which is in a Sistina, so it's going to be kind of weird. Dying Patroclus replied, Raise your prayers now, because you seal your own fate. I may perish soon, but you will swiftly follow. Mark gravely my words. You boast well, but this is the victory of Apollo, who made me easy to overpower. He, with his own hand, stripped me of my armor and glinting bronze, despite all those who were ended on the spot under my spear. Were it not for Apollo, I would never have been slain. But if not the son of Leto, then it would be because of Euphorbus I am slain. He, with a strike between my shoulders, ensured my murderous fate. And then it was you who third struck at me with your mighty spear, but yet you boast and gloat over me with your winged words. Now death stands beside you, casting a shadow on your shining bronze. God, that line's so good. (laughs) As by his bare hands, Achilles, son of Zaeacus, will you break asunder and overpower. And then this is the part I was referring to. And at the end of of his speaking, his strength, the wound, did finally overpower. His life breath rushed from his limbs in his last exhale, and now he was slain. His final sigh, lamenting, lost youth and vigor, smote by brutal bronze. Down it went to Rome, Hades, for Patroclus and all his valor still had a mortal's fate. That, That description of that, like, last sigh going down to Hades and being a lament, that's the death of the hero. So all of that about Jason being the quintessential hero, I was feeling a lot. All these little details kept reminding me of other heroes and their own fates, right down until like the famous like death of the hero. It's interesting as well because as this fight is going on to Apollo prays, even knowing None of the gods would answer him. Mm-hmm. I want to bring this back to Zeus for a minute mm. because I genuinely believe that part of this is Zeus punishing Jason because Jason talked back to him, basically. Partially because we had that callback to Jason defying him in this book, mm. um, like reminding us of that and reminding us that he and Apollo aren't that different in that moment. And so we know what apollo's punishment was but we never got one for jason Mm. second the fact that zeus doesn't answer this prayer and doesn't help jason at all um he saved thalia i wonder how thalia feels about that (laughs) rear guard act that's what thalia did she was like i'm gonna fight them to give you all enough time to get to safety yeah it's it's very similar but the real reason that i think this was zeus is after he gets jason the first time and jason falls off of his horse there's this quote it says Caligula stared at me across the chasm giving me the same displeased scowl my father used to before inflicting one of his punishments 
Now look what you've made Mm. me do. Which is in and of itself also wild because of what we mentioned before where like Jason is the one that has a good relationship with the gods that like Zeus actually answers. Mm -hmm. But he made one mistake. There are a lot of things that I want to say about Jason in this scene. But I first want to tie this back to the idea of Jason as a sacrifice. Because that's where we said that his whole connection to death came from, was the fact that he was originally a sacrifice to the gods. It was to Hera, but it was like Zeus basically requesting it. (laughs) And this just feels like the completion of like, Zeus wanted him to be that sacrifice for his entire life. And then he finally was. I just, I keep thinking about this as the the fact that this is the end of Jason's arc and it's just so brutal. And it's not even like in the climactic battle, like it's the act two reversal, like bro, we've still got a third of this book left. And it's so like, it's more violence that I feel like I've seen happen to any of the, the humans <laughs> in these books. Yeah, like the way Zoe dies, you know, like that first initial shift is she gets bit by the dragon and then kind of crushed. Like there's no, you know, you, she can kind of like languish into death, you know, there's not like a lot of like, it's a Disney death, you know? Yeah, this is the book I was thinking about when I said that every third book was a tone shift. I was just thinking about this yeah, book, especially because back when this book came out, I feel like it was so necessary that for Rick to go this far because the last series didn't have stakes no (laughs) like it didn't it didn't have like you never really felt like someone was going to die in the last series Mm -hmm. and even in the first series like you know you expect luke to probably die at the end yeah i mean you know like the you know the the tertiary ones they're gonna they're gonna they might kick it right it's not gonna be the main character I mean, obviously, all of the seven are the main characters, but Jason is the main character. Like, he's, if you had to label one of them as the main character of the last series, it's Jason. You take the character that you started the the last series off with, and it's like, he had to go this far so that we would be scared of him again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, the big deaths of Blood of Olympus were, like, it was Phoebe. Phoebe was the big death (laughs) of Blood of Olympus. And it was a big death. It was. Phoebe, the most important character. <laughs> I just feel like this was so necessary, like talking about the series, just because so few people were taking Trials of Apollo seriously. Still people mm. don't take Trials of Apollo seriously. Which is wild. Like if you, even without this, these books hit hard and mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're taking no prisoners. No one was ever going to take these books seriously unless he did something like this. Oh, yeah, because like Piper's like gotten her jaw broken too and is like also screaming. Like it's crazy. Yeah. Speaking of Piper, let's talk about chapter 34. (laughs) I think this was the chapter that shocked me the most because I feel like in the past, like in past Percy Jackson books, if someone died, like Bianca or like Zoe, it it can be a Disney death or it can be, you know, we lose the body or there's a a time jump. We usually don't dwell on it for too long. We'll, We'll spend a second to grieve and then it gets back into the action. But here we have an entire chapter dedicated to just watching Piper break down. Yeah. And to finding Jason's body, which is so like, like we never found Bianca's body or Mm. Beckendorf's body. And like Zoe turned into stars Mm. and Bob and Damison presumably died offstage. Or maybe they didn't. Or maybe not. (laughs) The only body we've really had to deal with. Like, I don't know what we did with Selena. (laughs) 
Yeah. But the only body we've really had to deal with is Luke's. And that was kind of out of our hands. The fates took him. But here, Jason's actual dead body is dragged up onto the beach and described in horrible detail. Yeah. <laughs> like his skin is already pale and his shirt, like this, oh my god. <laughs> he was wearing a blue dress shirt and the blood has stained it purple, which is horrifyingly symbolic because when I read this scene, or when I read the scene before this really, I you can't read that scene without thinking about his encounter with Michael Varys mm. in Blood of Olympus when Jason, you know, turns and is stabbed through the back and Michael whispers, born a Roman, die a Roman. I always think of that when I read this and the end of this book, jumping ahead a little bit, because Jason, we saw in Blood of Olympus, said that he feels like he belongs at both camps and that he's a child of both Greece and Rome. And that was the moment when Michael stabbed him. And just the fact that in death, he has no control over that. And like immediately his shirt is stained purple and at the end we're going to take his body to Camp Jupiter. Mm. There wasn't even a conversation about it. It was just let's send him back to Camp Jupiter. Mm. The moment he dies, he's Roman again. And like I, whenever I, something I keep coming back to is just how calm Piper was described throughout this entire book. Like over and over Apollo notes like how good Piper is at understanding her emotions and being able to convey herself calmly. Mm. And then here, it's just like this explosion for an entire chapter, just like every emotion spilling out of her. The line that gets me every single time is the, the what did he die for? A pair of shoes. Like, mm. that's what it was for. It was for a pair of shoes. Yeah. And then both Apollo and I were like, oh shit, do we even have the shoes? I totally yeah. forgot to check. You just have this moment of panic of just like, oh my god, did they even get the shoes? I don't remember. What I thought was also a very interesting turning point in this scene is Apollo is thinking he's guilty about it all. He's guilty about coming into their lives and just like completely throwing them both off from their trajectory. Like it felt really good for a god to finally, in a way, acknowledge the sheer amount of like things they demand from the demigods Mm -hmm. and how they constantly throw their lives out. And also then hearing somebody say heroes have to sacrifice themselves, like heroes sacrifice themselves. And his initial reaction is that horrifies him. Yeah, that's what Meg says as they're making their way back. She says, Jason made a choice, same as you. Heroes have to be ready to sacrifice themselves. Yeah. And Apollo thinks to himself, I didn't like her definition of heroism. Coming back to Hal a little bit, because I remember talking a lot about the connection between sacrifice and prophecy and sacrifice and agency i just found it really interesting that that concept was so horrifying to apollo because of how often you see that happen and how often you see that being the result of prophecy yeah i'm thinking right now about frank Mm. because in son of neptune we talked about how horrible he thought the idea of sacrificing yourself was Mm. and that he just didn't understand it and that that was part of his arc was like understanding why someone would sacrifice themselves like that. I find it interesting that Apollo is having that same reaction of like feeling like that shouldn't be the definition of heroism, but this time that's not presented as something that he needs to change necessarily. Yeah. About the way that he thinks about heroism. It's more just like isn't it terrible that heroism asks that of you? Yeah. Unrelated to that, I always sob when uh piper's dad shows up yeah again it's just one of those details that i feel like grounds it in reality where you know the mortal shows up and 
there's a moment where Apollo thinks this is the thing that's going to break him. Because we've still, he's still impacted by the choice that was made, that he made at the end of Lost Hero to forget. Like, he hasn't remembered. He's been, like, tugged all over the place by the gods and their antics. And he has no idea that that's why any of this is happening. He thinks his life is just falling apart. Yeah. And so he he sends Apollo back to try and call 911 from the house. But even that doesn't work. They have to get Crest to do it. Yeah. Um, Who's there? Didn't mention that. Oh, yeah, he's just there. Yeah. (laughs) So when they return, now that they have the shoes, they decide that it's time to go find the Oracle. And in the labyrinth, immediately there's, like, order to it. Because essentially um, they're given crossword clues that they have to fill in the blank and pick the right number of spaces to get through each next tunnel. And then they also Mm -hmm. realize that the clues are spelling out a prophecy. And if they answer one of the clues incorrectly in the crossword, as Apollo finds out the hard way, they will be dropped down into the fires of Helios, who, as we said, is being kept inside of the labyrinth. And this, I feel like the entire ending here is really about Apollo and Helios, which I thought was interesting because the first book, there's a lot of him and Daphne. And then second book, there's a lot of him and Commodus' relationship. But I feel like here, instead of like a past love of Apollo's, it's like a past life of his almost where it's like helios that's the person that keeps haunting him because as he's falling into the fire he gets a flashback to his first day as the sun god up until this point we've gotten references throughout the series of certain gods fading away and other gods taking up their duties primarily apollo and helios like as the main example but here it's really becomes clear just how little agency they have in it it's like helios was just like around less and less and then one day apollo woke up and he was the sun god. And it wasn't even because like he wanted to be the sun god. It was just like, that's just what the mortals had kind of collectively decided, that he would become the sun god. And he has to impose his will onto it to ultimately make it work. And he's thinking about that as he's jumping into Helios's flames and basically just trying to bind them to his will. I think the chariot is a good metaphor for it, where it's like, yes, you're telling the horses what to do and you're kind of holding the reins, but at the end of the day, they're the ones that have the power whether or not to throw you over and break your neck. But he's also able to forge a connection with Helios because it's in this in these moments as well that he realizes that Medea has also bound Helios into the labyrinth, and Helios doesn't want that. Helios doesn't want to be living this, like, half-life in torment. Like, he wants to either be gone or back. And, again, it sort of reminded me of where Apollo is right now, where, you know, he's not in torment, but he is bound to a form he despises. He also realizes that it's not lava that's everywhere, but, like, Helios's blood and, like, ichor, which is pretty metal. Pretty cool. It is. <laughs> so... Through all of that, he's able to sort of forge a temporary alliance with Helios and continue to get the prophecy from the Sibyl. Right. Once Apollo makes it to the Oracle, Meg, I think, uh, slashes her bonds away, but they immediately just wrap themselves around Apollo. Medea shows up and she starts the ritual, which involves mostly just her chanting and the descriptions here are unsettling <laughs> like mm. feeling things moving under his skin and like yeah it's all body horror this book is so body this, horror yeah there's a lot of that in... i guess that's the genre of horror i don't i don't know well... <laughs> i mean my thought was like slasher movie and the book is the slasher <laughs> It kind of is, yeah. I, well, I was actually thinking Saw. I also thought of Saw. <laughs> the, like, being chained up and the, you know, being stuck in a tornado full of shrapnel. like The, the puzzles. Yeah. 
So yeah, Medea begins her ritual, which involves chanting. So Cress and Meg start performing and singing. Cress is playing his ukule- Apollo's ukulele, which has been gifted to him, because again, Apollo promised him to teach him how to play music. And Meg is singing. Meanwhile, Apollo is being consumed by two things simultaneously, which is the Sybil, he, since he's like taken her change, he's now like starting to spout a prophecy the way she does. And also, he's feeling himself beginning to meld his entire identity with, like, Helios and Caligula. Like, he's sort of, like, going in and out, like, not sure who he is. Which, again, is very interesting from a world-building perspective to me. Because it's like, what is what, what makes a god a god? What's their essence? Like, what is this? And it seems like it is tied to him and, his, and who he is. And yet it's also changeable and movable. And also the fact that he's now also being forced... Because, like I said, Apollo is never really the vehicle of prophecy. So it's interesting to see him also forced into that role where he is the one that's, like, spouting prophecy. And he's, like, having to take that burden, literally, because he's chained to it. And then out of nowhere, a knife just appears in Medea because Piper has returned. She is so cool. To get her revenge. She's so cool. Piper manages to stab Medea in the back and kill her. She also has seven angry dryads with her. Yeah, these are the Meliae, which are apparently, well, okay. So we've already been introduced to the nymphs who nursed Zeus, but apparently the Meliae also nursed Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm choosing to reconcile this to the fact that there are actually two different caves. People theorize are like the Zeus cave on Crete. One of them is the Tan cave. The other uh. is the cave in Mount Ida. So I'm going to go with each of these are a set for like a different cave system but that's not the here so it turns out these seeds meg planted are these like primordial dryads that are super powerful and these are the people that meg's dad were and her whole family basically were trying to bring back piper her hair is singed from her journey through the labyrinth she's got some metal lines here uh one good stab in the back deserves another mm-hmm I'd tell you to say hello to Jason for me, but he'll be in Elysium. You won't. Mm. <laughs> and then she dies, which is great. There's a line, too, where Apollo remarks, like, her, like, number one priority was getting revenge, basically. She doesn't care about getting out again. That's all she came here for was revenge. This was something I put a big star next to <laughs> because I we cut this way back when. But when we were talking about the Battle of the Labyrinth, we were talking about the Labyrinth as grief. We got through the whole conversation, and then I, like, gasped. I genuinely forgot the labyrinth was in the burning maze, which sounds so stupid considering the title. I, it's valid. <laughs> this is what this is the conversation that we had, is that I, like, gasped, and I was like, wait a minute, the labyrinth comes back in the burning maze of all books about grief. The burning maze, and you were like, the labyrinth comes back? <laughs> <laughs> in the burning maze? What? I mean, this clip will probably be in our eventual spoiler episode where we compile all of the times we talked about this book. Yeah. Because <laughs> most of the spoiler, the spoilers that we cut are us talking about this book. But reading this book, thinking back on like the fact that we had talked about the labyrinth being the way that people work through grief. And the, what I settled on was that a lot of this book is about people responding to grief with anger and mm. with violence. And I think that's most explicit on Meg's side like we talked about because she is brought back home and has to face her grief over losing her home and her father to the emperors and so ends up on like a revenge path like dead set on killing Caligula in this book but here we also see that that was Piper's goal going back into the labyrinth this time was that she was going in by herself 
to get revenge on Medea. Mm. Like, she didn't care if she even made it out. She was just going in to kill Medea. And we also get it a little bit with, like, Apollo. The way that Apollo is able to connect with Meg is by thinking about his own anger after his father killed... Who was it? Was some mortal he favored. That was why he went and, like, killed the Cyclops. And that was what sent him to Earth as a mortal the first time. Yeah. Was acting on his grief and anger and trying to get revenge. And also because it's misdirected, too, because he kills the Cyclops because they make the lightning. And he even acknowledges, like, he wasn't actually angry at the Cyclops. He was angry at Zeus for using the lightning, not the Cyclops for making it. And I'm just working through this thought as well, because I was just thinking to myself, too, like, you know, when I was reading the book, it made sense to me where I was like, yes, Piper kills Medea for revenge. But then I'm just thinking back on it now, like, Medea didn't kill Jason. Yeah. It's like, again, it's misdirected where she's furious and she just is lashing out at the person she can lash out at, not at the person who's actually responsible. And even Apollo, again, like you mentioned, he cautions Meg against doing the same thing. You know, the labyrinth is filled with Helios's like essence. And that is just generally an angry essence. Yeah. Just the fact that the, the labyrinth is filled with this literally like hot anger boiling blood if you will yeah because i was thinking about our conversation about the labyrinth but i was thinking about the other thing which was who's the monster yeah which is also helios <laughs> yeah and it's helios it's such an interesting like monster in the labyrinth though because i think like many of the other monsters none of them are there by choice if you look back like the minotaur then you've got daedalus and then there was a whole debate over who's the monster in the labyrinth and yeah but I do like I do enjoy this trend of all of these monsters being beings that do not want to be the monster in the labyrinth. They do not want to live there, and so they're kind of like lashing out as part of their being trapped. And the other part of this moment at the end that Apollo has with Helios, because we when he talks through all of this, he says like I understand your anger to mm. Helios, and then he tells him that he remembers. Helios though your brilliance your warmth I remember your friendship with the gods and he says that every day I try to honor your memory to remember your best qualities I will endure I will regain the sun chariot as long as I drive it you will be remembered I will Mm. keep your old path across the sky steady and true etc it was here that I really started thinking about that theme of legacy and about you know how do you honor the dead and help them live on and actually fashion immortality for someone when they are mortal Mm. because like we've talked about how the type of immortality that these books prefer is that you leave something that you're remembered by but then this book is sort of like okay well how are you going to do that like apollo here telling helios that he's going to keep his legacy alive but also meg as her father's legacy because she plants those seeds and she completes his work and then also with apollo agreeing to jason's terms and telling him that he's going to complete jason's work at camp jupiter and make sure that the newly designed temple hill is completed so we get to actually see how does a legacy form and how do you like make sure that someone's remembered so that Mm. that kind of immortality can happen I think we end the book with a few other reminders, um, because as part of his sort of hallucinations, he sees sticks, which is what prompts him to keep his promise to Helios and to honor his memory. But he also thinks to himself that all of these deaths that he's have happened in this book, those are the consequences of all of the promises of, of his oaths that he's broken. 
And there's a line that made me think towards the end of the scene, which is that he thinks when he's looking at all the loss he's encountered and considering that, he thinks this is what it means to be human. But the thing is, as a god even, we've seen him deal with loss and even grief. You know, he's grieved Hyacinth as he grieved Daphne. We've seen him deal with all of that. So what I came up with was what he means by that is not the grief itself, but feeling responsible for people's deaths. That's what it means to be human, is that feeling of responsibility to him. Because I feel like that is sort of what we're seeing more and more him having to confront and what it's all kind of been building up to. Yeah, a responsibility for their deaths and a responsibility, I think, to the people who have died and to the people who are still around him because they will also die one day. And then, as you kind of mentioned in Titan's Curse, there's a moment where you really feel the tone shift at the end of this book because Leo comes back. Oh, yeah. The tone shift is so apparent there because it's like Leo from the past series. Like, for all he knows, this is how they find out he's alive, you know? Yeah. And he's like, hey, I'm just going to go hang out with my friends. And then the chapter ends with him being like, wait, where's Jason? Devastating chapter ending, Rick. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's the worst, too, because you feel like the book is ending. Yeah. Everyone's saying goodbye to each other. You're like, okay, we're going to leave it here. This time, what made me cry, I wasn't sure of it. I was crying and I was like, I don't know if I should be crying over this or not. (laughs) Because Leo calms himself down by tapping in Morse code. And from what I can remember, when he does that, he's tapping out I love you. Because that's what his mom like taught him. And when I realized that, I was like, that's the worst. (laughs) Mm. It's it's terrible. I'm going to cry again. (laughs) So it ends with Apollo and Meg on their way again. This is, this is why I felt like this was the theme of this book. Not not just with like Caligula and the Sybil and words mattering so much and like promises also, but the fact that it ends with Apollo saying to Meg that she shouldn't make rash promises and her immediately saying she promises that he will succeed in what he's trying yeah. to do. It also ends with Apollo thinking about all of Jason's work too and with him also making a promise to himself basically to remember so before we get into beads i'm thinking about in what way this is the third act of a usual percy jackson book structure we did already answer the question of the horror movie right i'm gonna yeah, go with we did saw. horror movies sort of we said it was sort of saw maybe a slasher movie but rick Riordan is the slasher <laughs> act three of a percy jackson book i would say sometimes it is loss Like, sometimes Mm. it is losing Tyson, losing Bianca. I think We Break a Bridge is around the third act, too. But in other books, it's like, I would say this book is around where, like, the Mount St. Helens scene happens. Mm. What I'm hearing is big drama. I mean, okay, the Mount St. Helens scene, though, is also a loss, so we almost lose Percy. And then we almost do it again if you say, like, falling from the arch. I think of, I really, I'm thinking it's, like, the act three point of no return. Yeah. It is, like, shit getting real. Yeah, that's literally what it is. Yeah, do you have a bead for this book? Actually, no. Wait, before we do that, do you want to guess what's going to happen in the next book? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, bronze against gold. That's pretty obvious. Greeks and Romans against each other. East meets West. Now, this is interesting because my initial thought was Byzantine versus Western Roman Empire. There's something there. But then I was also like, or it could just be like Frank's going to be there. 
Because then there's the line about redeeming the Legion, and I was like, oh, I bet this is a Frank thing. I would be interested to see if they do something with the, like, Eastern Western Roman Empire schism, because that could be cool. That, there could be some interesting directions we go in from there, but um, yeah. we shall see. God, I have to come up with a bead. I think I'm going to go with the, the, the Ikor, like, Helios's blood, like, the Ikor, like, in the maze. Oh. Like, the bead looks like it's fire, blood, whatever. Cool. Maybe mine is, like, a view of Jason's Temple Hill. Hmm. Not a blue button-down stained purple with blood. I thought I thought about the spear. Yeah, I thought about a bloody spear. I thought about the shoes with blood on them. <laughs> I went through a lot of bloody options before this one. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Uh, next time, we will be reading The Tyrant's Tomb, along with a special guest. If you'd like to see the art that I created during this episode, you can find that on all of our social media, at PJOPod, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email us any of your analyses or questions. We're, we're actually, we're coming up on the end of this series. Oh my god, yeah, we have to do a wrap-up. Yeah, we have to do a wrap-up. But um, I don't actually know when that'll come out because we plan to shift into TV show mode like the second that we can and our schedule doesn't really leave room for us to do a wrap up. But one will come out eventually. So still send in your questions and thoughts that you have on the whole series or on all three series combined since this is the end of the main Greek and Roman trilogy series. If you'd like to support us, you can do that non-monetarily by leaving us a rating wherever you're listening to us right now or spreading the word <laughs> word mm. of mouth <laughs> if you'd like to support us monetarily we appreciate that we have merchandise now which you can find at monsterdonut.redbubble.com and you can also donate to our Kofi or coffee however you say it and those links will also be in our link tree which are linked on all of our social media i think that's everything yeah Cool. Thank you for uh, listening. It's been a wild ride. This one, I've had an emotional last 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.